This is episode nine of the audiobook slash podcast project called Unconscious Subconscious, voiced, written, and produced by me, Matt Rebar. Chapter negative 34, Teardown. What was happening to me? I had started off as normal and usual with a resistant heart and a cold mind, but now I was becoming filled with emotion in ways I couldn't understand. I moved forward, heading out into the suburban and then ruralized parts of southern Fetusville, although directionally, I suppose it could have been north, west, east, or south. I met small babies who all nodded at me, and I witnessed a few die within my eyesight. Their deaths were beginning to normalize within me, although at the same time I was still reeling with everything. I was experiencing Clark King's reaction in the late 90s. I was feeling the hurt, the betrayal, and the confusion, the overall upset he had when finding out about his wife's abortion. If he constantly saw this image of a dead child where he went, I wondered how he had managed to survive all the way up to 2016. This kind of life didn't just shove innocence into a blender. It was a constant cycle of innocence ruin. I had saw the innocent die, but it had never been on some eternal spin cycle. Thankfully, I was on the edge of the rock at this point. Normally, I'd assess the situation, but I just wanted to get the hell out of Fetusville. Again, I walked across the void of Gignosco as dusk built itself around me. Maybe my anger and emotions over the situation stemmed from Mr. Wyatt's abuse. Was I still that messed up over it? I thought I would be strong to get past it, strong enough like I normally was when confronted with horror, but even I had my weak spot. Mr. Wyatt was the Achilles heel that had brought me down to this. Nothing I had ever done, nor anything which had been done to me, had ever broken me, but here I was, the sturdy metal twisted into liquid chrome. There was another part of the brokenness that stood out. Defeat. I had always taken my challenge and worn it well. But right now, I wanted to pull out the small protected casket, which held the red button that was promised to send me back to Earth. I really wanted to stop walking and keep myself propped up in the empty space of the world, which belonged to Clark King and of nothing truly pertained to me. I'd pull out that bag and open it to reveal the button. My finger would graze upon the top of the surface, debating between the pros and the cons of pressing it. I'd second-guess myself, but I think in the end, I would hold it down, which would... No good point would come from fantasizing escape. As much as I wanted to believe I could press the button, I didn't think that I would be able to do that. I had not found Clark King, nor had I discovered the truth behind Lavender, which had evolved into the code. There was a part of me which indeed wanted to crack open the secrets of Gignosco. This was far my own curiosity at play. The reason within wanted nothing more to do with this hellish place, but the grand design of Gignosco toyed with me like a shiny object to a crow. The upcoming rock featured a series of buildings which mimicked some kind of cityscape. There were no suburbs, no homes, just large towers, all of which were decayed and uninhabited. The steel looked rusted and weathered, while the interiors were crawling with nature and rot. I stepped onto the rock and began climbing the large mass, heading inland to the city. I could feel something living amongst the unlived, and so I headed out to that aurora that lay inside. I had tried to let go of the abortion. I tried so goddamn hard but there was no way to sever her actions I would stare at my world my once beautiful Yvette and all I could see was the child she had murdered I had never had a staunch view upon abortion until it happened to me for some reason every child affected by abortion would become my child they'd relate not by blood 
but because of the ugly truth of the situation they were in. These children went unwanted and in some cases unloved. Perhaps my statements are harsh. Perhaps as a male, I don't understand the picture. But truly, there was a better way. There had to be a better way. I noticed along the way that this place was called Agape City. A clear giveaway to note the love between Clark and Yvette. The love they shared was abandoned and destroyed just like this city. The place had been cleared out in a rush, although there were no bodies throughout my climbing and journey. It was easier than expected to move throughout this part of the inner realm as I climbed over buildings, some of which were suspended in mid-explosion. The whole city reeked of being frozen in time. Some of the skyscrapers and towers were in the midst of falling or in the midst of just decomposing at a fast rate. Instead, I climbed through this palm wrench of time and continued moving toward a humming sound. She told me that she had an abortion because she was in a very important part of her career, a part where a child would curb the promotions, limit her accessibility, and turn her from an adaptable strong teammate into a weak liability. The perception of a working mother was still harsh in the late 1990s, but I knew Yvette cared about her career. But I couldn't believe she had cared that much. Hell, if I could, I'd been willing to be pregnant and bear all the costs of all that potential career failings of having a child, but hypotheticals seemed to sting me just as hard as the reality. I remember sitting across from her at the dinner table. The oak spread between us, grown thicker and thicker with time. I was eating a crockpot stew that I had made that morning. The vegetables and meat melted into my mouth, but I felt none of the flavor and effect. I stared at Yvette. Her bulbous eyes had turned limp. The faint resignation of our marriage hung like the bags which peaked both of our cheeks. Gone was the woman who I had fallen in love with. She was nothing more but a mirrored inversion. Yvette had turned poison in my mind, and while I was seeking for an antidote, I began shaking and writhing from pain. I placed my spoon down on the plate and took a long sip of water. I pretended that the water was booze to give me confidence and asking the question that had to be said. Do you want to get a divorce? Hearing those words in the wind was like hearing it ticking from a bomb. I was standing next to the phone suitcase and waiting for that imminent explosion. Yvette and I liked eye contact, the first intentional time liking eye contact since God knows when. Her own mouth chewed, although I couldn't do the same. She sighed and grabbed another spoonful of my dinner for us. I think we should. And so we did. She had gone from my world to my pit of despair. She had been God turned devil. I wished I could do anything to save what we had had, but I don't think there was anything in particular I could do. We finished our respective meals with no other words. It reminded me of a passage from Kings where Ezekiel asks God to save him and God responds by moving mountains, raising hell, and leaving nothing but sheer silence. God proved to Ezekiel that God was with him. But the sheer silence after our conflict suggested that neither of us were with the other. Sheer silence was right. Silence was deafening within Agape City, except for the small hum which I created myself. Gignasco was a dark, a purple so past beat that it was borderline black. The hum began to evolve as I made my way into the city. Clark King was nowhere near done, however. The divorce was to be simple. We would attest to the court and split the possession with fairness. We would most likely be selling the house and split the profit. Everything about our courtship, love, and marriage had been stripped like tree bark and boiled to gum. It seemed to be a waste at the end. It always does. 
I remember the night before the court appearance for the divorce. I was at one of my favorite local bars, The Rascal. The place was owned by a loving couple, Wes and Ricky, both of whom who were aware of my divorce. They sat me down as I ranted, but after I felt so bad, they switched the subject. You two never told me how you met, I chuckled as Wes went back to the grill and looked at Ricky with a wink. I suppose I'll tell it, Ricky sighed as she looked back at her husband with a grin. Well, I know Wes mainly because of my cousins. He told me what a whore he was. In my defense, I wasn't a whore, but more of a pursuer of life. Talk about bullshit. Ricky rolled her eyes like shaking olives in a cocktail mixer. Anyways, Wes had a reputation, and I was going to be careful. I was a beautiful girl who wasn't looking to be trapped down by some horn dog of a man. So we set a date over the phone, old-fashioned, I know. I decided that in order to test this guy, I'd wait an hour before showing up. You were an hour late to your first date with him? I know, it sounds like a bitch move, but I, I wanted to prove that he was more than a whore. And Wes stayed for me, so I ordered vodka and ice my signature. And Wes eyes me and immediately lay down the law. I tell him, oh no, buddy, you ain't getting any of this tonight. I didn't expect to get any of it, Wes cried from the back grill. She looked really good, but a man like me can wait for true gold. The day went well. I didn't get home about mm, five in the morning, Ricky recalled. And that was just from talking and bullshitting and just existing. And I went to work the next morning, or I guess that same morning. <laughs> Everyone looked at me like I had taken some pipe. <laughs> Keep it classy, Ricky. Says the one who doesn't have a sliver of class. Ricky turned back to me with a goofy, romanticized grin. So we've been dating for a couple months when I hear a rumor that Wes went shopping with my parents. And so I try and get out of Wes. But he has a strong resolve and he doesn't say shit. But he tells me, well, if I were to ask you to get married, would you say yes? And I, resp and I respond, you know. Of course. And he's like, well, I'm just worried about Brad. Who's Brad? An ex-boyfriend. He was the love of her life before me, Wes explained. I was right to be worried, wasn't I? I'll give him that. I nodded. What did you say? I was so pissed that he brought up Brad that we didn't speak for like three days. And then I finally went to dinner with him and we argued again until he drove me back to my house. I fucking loved Wes. Yet he went and kept bringing up Brad and these hypothetical marriage questions, which I answered yes to. And... We pulled in my parents' driveway, and I was just about to get out when he pulled out the ring, and I stared at him. The ring was so nice and lovely and just what I wanted, but I'd rather look at him any damn day of the week, and naturally I accepted. And Brad can go fuck himself, Wes cheered as he whipped up a delicious-looking sandwich. Brad did all right for himself, but not as good as me. That story set my mood up well. Even amongst the personal turmoil I had gone through and loads of it to come, I realized that I had the power to endeavor through all of it. I didn't know whether I would love again, nor did I care, but I could tell love existed, and that all it took was for me to find the right match, just like how Ricky and Wes struck together and created flame. That was the longest speech I had ever heard from Clark King, and it ended before I came across the only living thing in Agape City. I was standing on one of the many floors of one of the central skyscrapers in Agape City. Down below was a large square which probably had been a park or a town square. Down there in the middle of the open space was a large human heart. Heart strings connected the hearts to the buildings around it as well as the crust of the rock Agape City dominated upon. The heart wasn't exactly beating but seemed to be breathing like a lung, swelling at a slow rate which then it appeared to be aged and too old to withstand much of anything. The flesh of the heart was hued in mixed reds and blues and purples, organ flesh. There was no blood or flesh, truly, but the heart seemed independent yet intertwined within the city. The heart continued to breathe as I noticed that the hum I had perceived was more of a dry wheeze as if the heart was dying. 
I didn't understand the exact connection of the heart and the city, but I supposed the heart was the only thing that was keeping the city in existence. Maybe the heart represented the pain of it all. Maybe the heart represented the final memory. The city was dead. It would not be inhabited, but there would always be something connecting Clark to this memory. Who? You? The voice sounded so strained, worried, and defensive as if my presence was going to cause a problem for the heart. I'm looking for Clark. Eternal foolishness. I wasn't sure of the heart's meaning, but before I could ask, the heart stopped moving and speaking. The flesh of the heart suddenly turned crispy black as if it had been set on fire. The strings which connected the heart with the Gepe City snapped backwards as if overstretched, separating the city from the heart. The heart had shrunk in its size, and now at defeat, time slowly became unfrozen. In the middle of the city, things began to continue their descent as one of the large buildings continued to the ground with a wicked slam. I stood with my mouth open but realized I would need to get going. I climbed down a couple of floors before the building I was on grew unstable. I ran forward, jumping off my current skyscraper and onto another one. I continued moving as I used the side of the falling skyscraper to connect to another building. This one in decay as everything began turning to ash. I could hear the large cries of the fallen buildings while the ash seemed to reek of death. I continued moving, doubling my entry speed in an effort to get out. I jumped on top of the roof of one building and catapulted into another. Well, I had spent time studying the city during my trip inside. I was now running out of the city with only my life on the line. Cascading buildings in their interior pieces missed me by feet, while several large second jumps saved me from a spiral of death. With one last crunch, I landed on the outskirts of Agape City, only to turn around and see that nothing more than a pile of building rubbish and ruin. Once again, Gignasco's happening had occurred with me as the central player. White, dusty smoke had been lifted into the air while the heart which had kept the city standing was nowhere to be seen, most likely buried underneath the rubble in a makeshift grave. But through all the teardown, through all the heartbreak, there was something greater within me that went deeper than all of that. I could sense it, but I was ignorant to its true meaning. But sooner or later, I would knock on the door of the pit of my soul, and when it opened, I'd be left spinning. All of this seemed unnecessary for me to be a part of. Why did I have to crawl my way out of a condemned city? Why did I have to do anything for Clark King's own sake? At this point, I was frustrated. Everything was bullshit. I wanted to leave, but after cooling down on my walk to the nearest slab of land, I remembered the reason I was here. Chapter negative 35, starring versus supporting. The next slab of rock contained a simplistic hill and a courtroom. The hill itself involved a gradual incline over short dead yellow grass with a sidewalk that looped around the entire hill and stairs and a ramp carved into the hill to connect the courtroom with the edge of the rock. I climbed the stairs and arrived at the outdoor plaza which was buzzing with humans and animals alike. The animals here were similar to the babies of Fetusville in which they talked, moved, and acted like humans than they did of their original species. There was a crocodile wearing some kind of cocktail dress with smeared red lipstick and who was loudly proclaiming their innocence in a prostitution crime. A regular human being and an eel shared their own parking ticket horrors while a sloth slowly crawled up the last three stairs in an effort to enter the building. The stone courtroom was actually proven to be titled The Court Room upon the stone. Above the title were stone carvings of a human being and six other species, a horse, cat, dog, snake, a bird, and a fish. There were pillars which came down with sharp stone taste while the doors were made of brass. I entered the lobby and noticed how the walls within the lobby were made out of water. 
A couple of the professionally dressed animals drank from the water as if it was a watering hole. Can I help you? An iguana dressed in security clothes and a hat asked me, looking at me with a small dose of concern. The iguana's voice dripped with husk and slithers as I turned around and looked at the iguana with indecision. I suppose I'm just here to check out the scene. Check out the scene. The iguana looked almost offended as the tuna fish who had been engulfing themselves in the water wall quickly turned and looked dead eye at the iguana and I. Yes, I was in the neighborhood. I'm watching you. The iguana spat before awkwardly moving away with bipedal movements. I was confused at the interaction but decided not to question it. I went inside the courtroom on the far left-hand side. There were three courtrooms, all of which were in session. In the far left courtroom, there was a court case between a human and six beavers. The judge was neither a human nor an animal, but was a glass of orange juice. The room was made out of wood and leaves, des designed to look like some ritual headquarters in a forest. I have made my verdict. The glass of orange juice cried out, the glass container shaking a little bit with bravado. The bailiff, who was a donut and was sprinkled, glazed and ready for his boss's verdict. In the case between Mr. Filisago and the beaver workers, I must side with the beaver workers. The beavers all cheered and shook hands with one another and their two lawyers. One of the beavers began crying while another beaver fanned himself while whispering, Yas. What? Mr. Filisago, the human, cried. I paid them a fair wage. It appears as if you did not, the glass of orange juice continued. I refuse to believe you even tried to give them a fair wage. He totally didn't, your honor. One of the beavers cooed before running his little hand through the fur on his head. Mr. Fellagio is a bad man, Judge Juicy. Judge Juicy, I promise to give all my employees a most fair wage. Mr. Fellagio didn't get too far with the comment before one of the sassy beavers interrupted him. No, you fucking didn't. The one beaver snarled, buck teeth ablaze with saliva that sprayed everything within a two-foot radius of the beaver's big-ass mouth. You let us starve and shit. Like, who are you fooling? I couldn't tell whether beavers were representative of black women, sassy, effeminate gays, or some kind of urban attitude, but as the argument continued, it was Clark King who seemed to be make the sense out of everything. Courtroom battles are a ridiculous affair. Nothing seems to ever fully make sense, and every party steps over the boundary at least once. It's not about law. If it were to be about law, then it would be different. Courtroom battles are about arguments, evidence, money, your lawyer, your presentation and impression, the way overall truth could be bended into doubt. Law will always fascinate me, even as someone who'd barely had to deal with them. I suppose barely is an understatement, but it wasn't like I had all this court experience. I had a speeding ticket or two, but I paid them on time and didn't fight my clear violations. There was just something that stuck out about the whole facade. Innocence will proven guilty, justice is blind. These mottos seem to be nothing more than a way to suggest fairness existed in a world where it clearly did not. Regardless, I've made my decision, Judge Juicy shouted out to the room. The orange juice was pretty close to being spilled over at this point because the juice was at full power in his bold speech. Mr. Phil Sago, we shall pay each beaver 2000 in back payments. Failure to do so, and we will see you in court again. The case is dismissed. The beavers continued to celebrate while Mr. Filisago and his lawyer stormed out of the wooden room. Some of the leaves fell to the floor casually while a manta ray and anteater talked about the case next to one another. I was curious to how waterbound animals survived without water, but I wasn't going to question it. With the case dismissed, another case began in session. This time an orange-suited ox and cuffs was dragged to the podium in front of the judge. Guys, 293-40. Anthony James Willows versus Gignasco, your honor. The bailiff, a.k.a. the Frosted Sprinkled Donut, shouted. 
I didn't know how the donut saw the sheet of paper it was holding, and neither did I know how the donut was able to vocalize the information. I didn't question it, as the orange juice seemingly nodded. Thank you, bailiff, Judge Juicy announced before looking at Willows. So you're back again, Mr. Willows. How unfortunate I thought you had changed since your last session of therapy. I thought I did too, Judge Juicy. Willow shrugged. His horns looked rather dulled, and his tufts of brown hair were faded like leather strips left too long in the sun. But I suppose I just did the same shit again and again. Shame, Judge Juicy said. Is there anything else you would like to say for yourself? I don't judge. I'm sorry that I failed you in the court. I am too. I sentenced you to a thousand years to be served at the Gignosco prison in the Middle Realm. I cannot apologize for being so strict considering the pardons I've given you many a time. I understand. Willows was dragged out of the court while the tasty donut bailiff finished the paperwork and Judge Juicy abandoned the throne of his courtroom. The manta ray was now crying as the anteater held the manta ray. The two slowly left the room and I noticed that both appeared to be women. I wondered whether the manta ray was a friend, a family member, or lover of the ox. If I had to watch a family member get sentenced to a thousand years, I think I'd absolutely be devastated as well. I cleared out soon after the rest of the congregation did and walked over to the next courtroom in the middle of the three. This courtroom was set with an interesting design, which mimicked an icy tundra. It wasn't cold per se, even though the floors and ceilings were made out of ice. The seat and the judge's platform were all made out of glass, which was slightly warm to touch. The courtroom was ruled over by Judge Kendra Pollock, who was a happy-looking seal. I suppose my only question is, why did you murder your girlfriend? Judge Pollock sighed with a twitch of her seal nose and whiskers. I commit you guilty for the crime so you can speak honestly with me. I didn't kill her. The defendant was a pink starfish who stood with surprising grace considering he was a five-pointed jelly-filled animal. I promise I didn't even touch my girlfriend during the night she was killed. I think it was her boss. You don't have an alibi and some kind of evidence. Well, it's just incriminating. Judge Pollock sighed. Her seal flippers didn't look happy to clap for the room. The seating was more packed in here as a few audience members held up signs that said, Mercedes is innocent, and I had to believe that Mercedes was in reference to the pink starfish. The police didn't even inspect Wanda's boss. I assumed that Wanda was Mercedes' girlfriend. Mercedes shouted to Judge Pollock. The seal looked quite conflicted in their icy pedestal. How can you charge me without thinking about the boss? <sighs> Arf, I don't know what to do. Judge Pollock sighed. Where is Wanda's boss? A man stood up in the back row. This man was a walrus and was filled with fat rolls and hidden nooks and crannies. The walrus's tusks were a solid golden color and appeared unthreatening. I'm Mr. Reynolds, and I am Wanda's boss. The walrus cried out, albeit the gasps and absolute shock from the crowd. Even Judge Pollock appeared not to have her shit together for a minute as everyone looked out at the walrus who moved forward on his flippers until he stood next to Mercedes, the pink starfish. The whole thing was on high drama alert and felt somewhat forced. I eyed everyone in the room, but there didn't appear to be anyone who didn't buy the act that was unfolding in front of them. This is the boss? Judge Pollock asked, and Mr. Reynolds nodded. Yes, I am. The walrus cried out with a small, fishy-smelling burp. And I did not kill Wanda. I have an alibi. Art, what's the alibi? Judge Pollock questioned. The prosecutor, who was a human girl at the age of eight, held up a piece of paper. Your Honor, I got the alibi. The little girl chuckled. Or for the record, Prosecutor Smith has the alibi. Judge Pollock turned to the stenographer, and who was a bologna sandwich, who used its lunch meat innards to type up the notes. The bailiff was a used condom, who nodded along with Judge Pollock. So Mr. Reynolds was at his mother's house, the little girl chuckled. So he couldn't have killed Wanda. 
<clears throat> Your Honor, we cannot trust that alibi from Prosecutor Smith and Mr. Reynolds. Mercedes lawyer, a bottle of vodka, cried out. A few members of the audience gasped dramatically, including a bottle of yarn, a crispy-looking tree branch, and what appeared to be a large fantasy novel. Er, listen, Jin, I understand why the alibi sounds confusing, but we must respect it. Judge Reynolds sighed to Jin, the vodka bottle lawyer who might be a bottle of gin instead. Or unless there's someone in the crowd who wants to argue against Prosecutor Smith. Teehee! Usually no one argues against me, Your Honor. <laughs> Prosecutor Smith chuckled, and the whole courtroom sighed with glee from her cuteness. After all, she was eight years old. But d defendant lawyer Jin can try. The courtroom went into a strong series of aww. From Prosecutor Smith's inability to properly say defendant, Jin looked over and smiled at the eight-year-old girl. I knew that the bottle of vodka or gin was smiling because of the small crease on the label which moved like a smile. And I call my surprise witness, Mr. Reynolds' mother! The whole room gasped in horror as an old female walrus rolled through the courtroom doors and piled herself up in front of the judge. She stood between her son, Mr. Reynolds, and the already declared guilty Mercedes, the pink starfish. The ball of yarn untangled itself in shock while a microwave started smoking from the surprise. Your Honor, this is so uncool. Prosecutor Smith cried out almost in tears because she had been bested. Like, unfair and just mean. Arf. I'll accept this surprise witness. Judge Pollock nodded, clapping her hands together and making a notorious sealed bark. Art, what does Mr. Reynolds' mother have to say? Mm, she has a lot to say, but we can cut to the chase. Jin, the vodka bottle, nodded, turning to the mother walrus. My son was not with me that night, Mr. Reynolds' mother snarled. He was out in the streets till 2 a.m. That's the time Wanda was killed! Mercedes cried as the room was struck with side conversations. Judge Pollock looked shocked as a tree pulled down by the breeze. Arf, do we have evidence? Judge Pollock questioned, and Jin stepped forward with Mr. Reynolds' mother's house footage, which was played back for all to see. The gasps and cries continued as proof indeed looked rather bad for Mr. Reynolds. The whole case seemed to be in shambles, but, well, Judge Pollock corrected the decision she had laid down. Arf, I order the free release of Mercedes and the jailing of Mr. Reynolds. Arf. Judge Pollock commanded as the used condom bailiff released the starfish and jailed the walrus. The whole courtroom cheered as Mercedes bent over and began weeping. The walrus made threatening sounds, but no one seemed to care about him. Arf, I'm so sorry, Judge Pollock weeped, adding to Mercedes' own tears. Well, the justice system will have to work on itself, won't it? Like the previous two cases I had witnessed in the courtroom of Judge Juicy, nothing made sense, and I didn't expect it to make sense either. I left the celebrations in the middle courtroom and began walking to the last room I had yet to visit. On the morning of my case against Yvette, I thought I was going to walk into a standard court proceeding, although the truth was that I was about to begin a four-month battle. It was roughly 2003, and everything outside of my marriage had been going well, but my marriage was about to be shifted like trash for the next few months as Lovett's lawyer did her best to paint me as a financial abuser within the relationship. Instead of splitting our finances practically down the fair line, I was making 60 k a year while Yvette made 80 k and so we adjusted according to that difference. Yvette wanted to leave me dry. I didn't know if she truly did want to see me suffer for this divorce or whether Yvette merely allowed her lawyer to present the argument which would take thousands of my settlement away from me. With Clark King's words trailing out of my mind like a funeral procession, I walked into the third courtroom, which was decorated with sheets of glass which glowed in neon colors. The lighting was dim while the ceiling echoed at night sky in full blossom, twinkling messages which couldn't be exactly deciphered, their light a remnant of what existed thousands of years previous and perhaps not today.
In the front of the room, and elevated, was a glass bowl filled with peanut butter-colored liquid pudding and a sign underneath the seated judge which read, Judge Butterscotch. To the left and right of the judge sat two parties. One featured a lion dressed in a suit and tie. The lion's mane was sprawled over the dark suit jacket while his stature was calm and collective. Next to the lion was a human woman who wore a crimson pantsuit and purple lipstick. The other table featured a pure white squid who was dressed with a female gender pieces and a large piece of peppermint circular candy who supported a bow tie. The bailiff in this room was a large roll of duct tape who looked both unthreatening and somewhat unusable. I sat down in the last row, close to one of the few humans within the room. His blonde hair was swept back and his disposition was weary. We sat on the side of the room with the lion, although I wasn't sure which party I would relate to as the proceedings continued. decision, the bowl of putterscotch pudding cried out to the room. Everyone was beyond silent, as if death himself had instructed not a word from any breathing being. I carefully looked at all the arguments presented, but it did come down to one thing, the divorce itself. You two no doubt loved each other at one point, which is surprising, considering the standing you are in here today. There is a hate between you two, or if not between you, then created and presented from the perspective of your lawyers. Regardless, no matter where we are now or where we go forward, there was a point when the two of you in the past said that this relationship could no longer work. It came from, if I'm right, Miss Yarvet, from your secret abortion. The squid nodded and accepted the clandestine material thrown into her face. So this marriage fell apart because of you. Judge Butterscotch was right, and both the squid and lion knew it. Not to place blame, but your action went undiscussed and went hidden from your husband. You had every right to be upset and every right for this divorce. For you to ask for more, more beyond your fair share, is criminal. Do you think you've taken enough, Miss Yavet? Hasn't Mr. Clarine King gone through quite enough? The references of Clark King and Yvette King were clear in the titles and the case of Mr. Clarine King and Mrs. Yervet. But I didn't think anyone else would notice. The peppermint lawyer immediately stood up and a legal argument broke out between him and the judge. The person next to me sighed and spoke out loud. This is painful, the swept blonde sighed. I wasn't sure if he was talking out loud for the benefit of hearing his voice or if he was trying to converse with me. Do you know either of them? Clarine King and I work together. He's my closest friend. What's your name? I asked. I'm Bill. Everyone has their best friend to work. For me, it was Bill. We sat next to one another and bonded immediately. So many hackers try to be someone that they forget to be someone. Bill was a solid guy through and through. I shook hands with Bill, but before we could continue, the legal battle exploded slightly. Enough! Judge Butterscotch snarled, and the peppermint candy lawyer fell silent. Back to what I was saying. Due to Mrs. Yavarette's actions, I cannot reward her more than the previously agreed upon settlement. Case dismissed. Immediately, Mrs. Yavarette and her lawyer cleared the courtroom while Judge Butterscotch and the duct tape bailiff stayed in place. Bill looked like he wanted to say something to the lion, but he was too busy talking to his lawyer. I didn't know how the court battle was going to go, but I felt confident Yvette's lawyer was about to leave empty-handedly when my lawyer brought up the reason for the divorce, Yvette's abortion without my knowledge. My lawyer explained that I was left absolutely distraught, and if anything, I should be the party receiving extra funding. The bomb sealed the deal. And at the end of the four months, the judge ruled in my favor, and Yvette didn't receive any additional funds from the predetermined agreement. After court, I never saw Yvette again, nor did I speak to her. What was there to say? 
Between the courtroom bullshit battle and the fucked up person she had become, I didn't care to see her face ever again. Last I heard, she was doing decent on the West Coast. I didn't care about the location. I wasn't pissed that she was doing decently. She had left a bitter taste before the court case turned sour affair, which left me reeling for a while. What are you doing here? Bill questioned me. All of a sudden, the idea of a court had shattered in Bill's mind, and now he's more curious on my identity. I'm just passing through. Passing through? It sounds vague. It's the truth, I promise. Tell me more about what you're up to. I'm on a journey. A journey for what? If I tell you, can you promise you won't freak out or do some stupid shit? <laughs> I'll try. Bill shrugged. I'm looking for Clark. Well, I don't know whether to look at you as if you're crazy or commend you for some effort. Bill admitted as we both continued to sit. Clearing King and his the Crimson lawyer stood up and walked the back of the court. Clearing King and Bill exchanged some words, but Clearing King's lawyer needed some more time with Clearing King. The lion, the Crimson lawyer, walked out of the courtroom, leaving Bill and I. Judge Butterscotch and his bailiff duct tape had also managed to leave the courtroom, although I wasn't sure how they managed to exit without conspicuousness. You can do either, I shrugged. I think my time is done here anyway. You're leaving? Bill asked with a sharp tone. Where are you going? To new places. That sounds interesting. I've been told I'm interesting. I shrugged as I stood up. Bill joined me walking out of the third courtroom with me into the general lobby where humans, animals, and normally inanimate objects milled and talked softly. You have me interested. Interested in what? Coming for you with your journey. <laughs> I don't know if you want to do that. I left the courtroom and began crossing the plaza with the intent to head the next place I could. Why is that? Bill asked, stepping in front of me so that I had to look at him. Why do I not want to do that? I didn't want to mention that five previous accompaniments had all perished, but at the same time, I just wanted to discourage Bill. You just don't. You have me intrigued. I don't know how I had Bill intrigued. Most of my followers, aides, and guides had felt something within the first few minutes of interaction. What they had felt in me, I could not explain. I was not looking to be a leader nor a colleague to these individuals, but, but as much as they had been drawn to me, I had been at least minimally enthused, if not maximally dedicated to their identity. Fine, I sighed. You can tag along if you want. Where are we going then? Bill questioned immediately as I cased the world of Gignosco. In the far south, I saw a large, expensive hellfire that I'd rather not explore, but there was only one place left privy to the hellfire, which I most likely would be exploring. Let's head out to that building over there, I shrugged, pointing out to the east of the courtroom. That looks like a good place to start. Going forward into 2004 and beyond, I would focus on my work. After all, I was going to be creating some really fucking amazing pieces. Creations which would overlook Yvette, at least in terms of what it meant for humanity, and less about my personal devotion. Chapter negative 36, The Learned Way. Bill and I walked in silence across the void of Gignosco. The ambience was filled with the nearby travesty coming from the south. I wondered if that was truly what was meant by the south, horror and pain in a vivid flashpan. I tried my best not to look south towards the hellish landscape, instead looking to the singular building ahead. Like the courtroom, the upcoming location was a singular building which took most of the rock space. Bill walked along aside me as if we were two strangers heading in the same direction by coincidence and not actual partners in the twisted journey to find Clark. So why Clark? Why not? I answered Bill's question, the void swallowing emotion, continuance, and inflection. Bill chuckled. The laugh itself was not awkward, but the placement and reaction was. 
Do you ever have dreams that feel like reality? Bill questioned. You know, you experience something in a dream, and then can you categorize it, and for some reason you remember it as if it happened? I guess. I shrugged, looking over at Bill and taking note of his upbeat personality. Why does that happen to you a lot? Not a lot, but I suppose sometimes I can't remember my dreams from reality. They blend together over the years. Some memories are clear, but others dance on the borderline, slipping back and forth if it's a needle on the sundial. So in your life, the sun is always shining. I've related more to the sun than I do the moon. Are there suns and moons in Gignosco? You could see them in the faint distance, I promise. The sky seems to be a blanket of purple dyes pulsating with the backdrop of a light which fades according to its own desire. <laughs> That's Gignosco for you. Everyone does their own desire, Bill sighed. Where are you from in Gignosco? Dahlia Village. Ah, oh, I've heard of that place. I actually live in Cultura City, like 75% of Gignosco. Why do you live in Cultura City? I think there's a safety element to living there, Bill admitted. There's so many people there, so much protection. Humanity doesn't seem as bleak when they're forced to live together. So you don't trust people? I'm trusting, just that I understand humans know enough to know that we need a series of laws to hold each other accountable. Bill sighed as we walked forward, the afternoon Gignosco surroundings illuminating Bill's opinions. You've probably seen some of this shit down here. The plantation over around there? The fast food place or whatever? I've heard of people using each other due to horrific things just because they can, and I don't know. People do what they want, I suppose, but there's a point where it just gets to be too much. Isn't life just like that? Too much? You seem to be more so the moon, Sydney. Well, how am I the moon? You're the king of darkness, even though there is light within you. How do you know that I contain light? I can feel it. Nobody does anything around here, but here you are, trying to find Clark. It makes you special whether you want to admit that or not. I'm not special, Bill. I'm merely just who I am. Why do you destroy yourself like this? So inherently denying trumped-up charges is inherently self-mutilation. <laughs> I hate when people fight against their truth. And by truth, I mean the real truth to who they are. Who are you to care of one's self-perception? Imagine this world with me, Bill asked, spreading out his hands as if in prayer. A world where everyone is confident, where everyone pushes themselves to the limits, and where doubt is filled with just trying. Can you imagine it? Because sometimes I do. But other times I realize I'm too optimistic. Such a world would be ran with heavy speed, the gears moving so fast that there's no way to slow down. But slowing down is a world for a loser. He was right in the sense that it was better to move with speed than to be slothful. I've always lived with speed, I shrugged. I couldn't imagine living a slow life. So many love a slow life, because the fast life was too much for them, maybe. Or perhaps they'd never try the fast life. Can you imagine being accustomed to the sloth and unmoving fate of time? You speak of horror, I chuckled. I've seen many horrors, Bill admitted, and thus silence stood for a while until we reached the edge of our next destination. The building was quaint and made out of glass. The darkness of Gignosco caused the building to reveal soft lighting, most likely by candle and fire. There was a small plaza filled mostly with plant life that swayed with a tenor wind. There was a metallic sign in front of the building which read, The Library, Gignosco's Elite Foundation of Knowledge. Huh, I muttered. This place is going to be academic, isn't it? It is, Bill added. Did this place will have information about Clark? I wonder. I sighed, opening the doors and walking into the building. At the front desk was a giraffe who craned to look down at the new guests. Why, hello, I'm Sydney. Welcome to the library. Sydney the giraffe smiled. Thanks so much for visiting us. What are you here to look for today? Honestly, we're just here to look around. Nothing special, I said with the smallest of grins. 
I wanted to look thankful for the introduction to the library, although it was hard for me to feign interest. Well, I'm not the only librarian here tonight, so if you need help, you know where to find us. Cindy smiled as Bill and I nodded and left the front desk area and into the thick stacks. There was plenty of seating and a few computers. The patrons were low tonight, although there was an old human man poring over texts and a monkey currently searching for material in a row which featured literature from ancient Gignosco. As Bill and I looked for material connected to Clark, Clark addressed the library for me. Everyone was trying to climb their ranks. Everyone wanted more. Knowledge was always power when it came to controlling the ignorant. I wanted to be more than just a government hacker, and luckily, the opportunity came in 2012. The world had changed in the time period, but I suppose more on that would come later. We were past the recession, past the Bush administration. We had launched into a new era of terrorism, both domestic and foreign, and now the world of a hacker like me was needed. Granted, the world was on fire, and I was being asked to help extinguish it. I was one of the few people who survived from 1995 to 2010, let alone in 2012, when I'd be given the opportunity to learn more, to be more, to climb. Bill and I continued until we came upon the religious section of the library. Let's take a stab at some of these titles. I sighed. My hand slowly began traipsing over titles as my eyes read onto them. The meaning of life. All things Gignosco, the spirituality of realms, human and animal souls and spirits, early spiritual leaders, the religious institutions of Gignosco, the holy war of the South, personal morality in the contemporary age of Gignosco. None of the titles were related to Clark until I finally reached a subsection of the bookcase. Titles like Clark and Lavender, The Truth Behind the Code, Clark's Desires for the World began sticking out. I had Bill help me comb the indexes, glossaries, and introductions and chapter descriptions. We want anything to do with Clark's location, I explained to Bill. I've been told that Clark lives in the South, but we need more than just that simple clue. On it, boss. Bill and I were slaving over the books, which seemed like hours, until finally Bill turned to me with a book called Why Clark Exists and Is Not a Myth. Read this segment, Bill demanded, and I looked down to where Bill's fingers were to read out loud the section highlighted. Clark's location has been described as both tangible and within Gignosco, and intangible and outside of Gignosco. If we are to believe that Clark is the creator of Gignosco, it's not illogical to assume that he remains tied to Gignosco in some degree. There either exists Clark in a location, or perhaps if not Clark, then a spiritual location to which Clark can utilize to arrive back in Gignosco from other dimensions. These concepts are backed up by the reports of many human beings on the obliteration, who claim that they have heard the voice of Clark call out to them from the horror of the natural chaos that exists within their land. They claim to hear that Clark is near them and is close by, and all that that separates them is a flipped landscape and a lavender plant. I stopped reading due to the arrival of a singular creature who appeared at the end of the long shelf of which Bill and I were parked within. Bill and I looked over to the bird who was composed of so many different archetypes of birds. I could see parts falcon, owl, hawk, pigeon, penguin, peacock, phoenix, crow, vulture, and cardinal all wrapped up and packaged into a chimera which defeated all the other birds with its sheer magnificence and presence. The bird moved forward slightly, although gave us a bit of breathing room. I am the bird of all birds, and I am the head curator and management of this establishment. The bird of all birds whispered in its best library tone. His voice was a little British, and his mannerisms were no doubt an echo of his European humanism, which was underneath the blanket of dark feathers and intense eyes. I could not help but notice how long you were spending in this aisle. Interesting. Two human males checking out the religion and spirituality section. I cannot tell you how it pleases me that, that you fit your own sectionality within my library. Did you create the library? I asked. No. I am merely its current head. The bird of all birds shook his head. His beacon plumage moved in one fluid motion. 
I am the protector, both from the ignorance of all species and from the act of harm others commit. Have you found what you've been looking for? I have, I nodded, trying not to ruffle the feathers of the bird of the all birds. For some reason, I was off-put by the bird of all birds. He seemed rather phony in his attitude. No doubt the bird of all birds was measuring up whether or not we would be a threat to his library. Before anything else was said, the bird of all birds quickly grabbed why Clark exists and is not a myth from my hands. His eyes quickly read and absorbed the page before he clicked his beak together to form an ear-grating audio which seemed to summarize displeasure. You're trying to find God in an effort to play God, aren't you? The bird of all birds asked. His tone masked the anger which was present in the way he moved his body. You are not using the library to help you with your terrible efforts of doing damage to Gignosco. You are not first to come here. I met many people who wanted information about living things, about Gignosco, and even about themselves. Some of them escaped, like Shelley, the ginger bitch who runs her plantation on the other side of the library. Others have not managed to leave this library with their grit and life. I do not tolerate knowledge being used for evil. Do you understand? You misunderstand, I explained. We are seeking out Clark to save the world. Why does Gignosco need saving? The bird of all birds chuckled as if oblivious to the truth behind the fucked up state of Gignosco. You're the head of the library. Clearly you should already know the information already, I muttered. You just named Shelley. I barely escaped from her grip myself. There are so many places in Gignosco which are hurting. We're here to help heal. Your bullshit is so beautiful that an average-minded human being would no doubt fall for it. No doubt many have fallen for you and supported you. The bird of all birds chuckled. What's your name, you ignorant being? I'm Sidney Mercer. Good. The bird of all birds sighed. Before I tick out a man like you, I must know his name. Knowledge is my pastime, as you know. The bird of all birds immediately cried out and came forward while I pulled out my sword. A battle began between the two of us in the shelves and in the small pockets of free space that acted like pseudo-hallways. Neither of us were able to touch the other originally, but after the first five minutes had passed, we both had a wound. One of the talons upon the bird of all birds' limbs had peeled my shoulder open. The talons were almost undistinguishable from the body of feathers. I had managed to cut into the main body of the bird of all birds as his own blood stained the floor of his beloved library. "'We don't need to be fighting,' I snarled. "'We're on the same side.' No, we're not. It takes a being like myself to differentiate the truth, and I see you are my enemy. The bird of all birds shrieked, flying forward like a jet plane. I tried avoiding the bird, but the talons sinked into my clothes and dragged me to the main center of the library. Patrons and librarians cleared out of the way as the fight continued. I used the library's chairs and tables as my defense as the bird of all birds took the large sky. There was an atrium which exposed the dark night above us, while the building seemed to grow dimmer with time. I switched to my gun during this exchange, the bullets missing or grazing the bird. With one singular crack, I managed to really dig a bullet deep within the bird of all birds. The bird of all birds fell to the ground in the middle space and I walked up to the creature. Before I could do anything, two birds appeared behind me, grabbing my arms and tying them up with large string. Unlike the bird of all birds, these birds clearly mimicked more so crows. Their blackness was more eternal than the dark coloration of the bird of all birds. The bird of all birds stood up, looking unharmed, while a third crow had tied up an apprehended bill. They come into our temple, the bird of all birds whispered. They take it for their own, and then they try and kill us for doing the right thing. I deserve more to be punished. You know nothing about me. I spat in the face of the bird of all birds, who looked shaken to his core. No. No, I know everything about who you are, white male human. The bird of all birds screamed, his British tone embodied with pure rage. 
I do not need to hear your story to know what your story is about. Like the many who I have read, studied, and witnessed, you are a creator of chaos. You inherently desire war in every step and action you do. There is no peace, no chance for a quiet storm. You are inherent kamikaze, don't you know this boy? I know what I'm doing with you. I'll connect you with the world that forms your incarnate. The bird of all burns turned to his three henchmen. Let us leave the library. This place need not the pain nor conflict of the humans abroad. The bird of all birds demanded as Bill and I were carried out of the library, all eyes on us. This library is a joke to true knowledge, I spat. You can't censor knowledge. You can't hide knowledge, and nor can you blame knowledge for human reason. You can't even predict Bill and I for anything. You don't know everything. I am aware that I don't know everything, but I am more aware that I know more than you. The bird of all birds stepped outside the library with his siege behind him. Sydney, the librarian giraffe, watched with wide eyes and a gaping jaw as Bill and I were led out of the library. Without words, the bird of all birds jumped into flight, heading out south of the library. Immediately, I was picked up into the air by the two crows and manhandled into flight. The library and the courtroom could be seen in their full architectural glory while the upcoming southern mass of horror drew closer. I wasn't sure what was happening, but I was tied up with rope and unable to struggle in my current position. The bird of all birds landed onto the surface of a large hellish land, and his assistants came after him. Up close were a series of stakes, and some of them featured rotting flesh, while others were adorned with skeletal remains. The bird of all birds did not order anything. His assistants already had an idea of what was going to happen. Bill and I were immediately tied to two of these stakes, as if food remains clinging to the teeth of a wilder beast. My arms were tied back around the post, as was Bill. I tried freeing myself, but it was apparent that I was stuck here on this pike. Sometimes through pain do we become enlightened. The bird of all birds cooed. His beak opened to reveal the darkness behind his tongue mixed with his candor. The library was built with fire and brimstone. His creatures designed a singular interior for wisdom. You come to me with ignorance and arrogance. Whether or not you see such traits is different. I will not let you destroy what I am in charge of. You cannot be allowed to threaten me, my charge, nor the knowledge of Gignosco. You, as an individual, will always be second to the world around you. No matter what you did, what you said, or who you inherently are, you will never be worth saving against the world. The bird of all birds turned to his three employees. Let us take flight and leave these three to the world of the obliteration. The bird of all birds lifted into flight, soon accompanied by his henchmen. Indeed, a nearby wooden thatched sign read at the location as the obliteration. It was not the place one would like to be tied up upon, was it? Chapter negative 37. The world ends here. What do you know about this place? I demanded from Bill as soon as the bird of all birds and his men had flown the coop. The obliteration, Bill whispered. It's the furthest thing from the democracy and peace of Cultura City. It's a suburban and rural landscape of war, bombs, murder, and blood. This is where Clark was written about, back in the book in the library. I muttered, trying to stay positive even though we were sitting prey for whatever would want to taste us within the obliteration. He's here, in the obliteration. If not here, then he's here. I wish I could pay attention to that confusing idea, but I'm really bothered right now, Bill whispered. Look at all these dead bodies. Who are these people? How did they get to these pikes? This is like a feeding ground of some kind, 
I whispered. We know who the food is, but who's the eater? The midlife crisis is a common experience and was one that I had. While on the surface it looked great, I suffered from around 2005 to 2011 or so. Following the divorce up to the special project I was destined to do, I was in my own kind of hell. I'd get up, go to work, come home and eat before falling asleep. On the weekends I'd stay home, which was less depressing than doing things by my lonesome self. As much as there was quiet and calm, it was the kind of silence which resonated like bombshell and tasted like gunpowder. I didn't know how to get out of my funk for over six years. I suppose I wasn't depressed as much as I was unsure. This was the time where I became indecisive. What was I supposed to do? I had outlived so many within my field, and I was seen as one of the top hackers in my agency. But that wasn't enough for me. I suppose I just really wanted to personally be happy in all regards. Before we could question for too long, a series of terrain vehicles rushed across the Badlands terrains and towards Bill and I. It felt like I was back in Blade Desert all over again, although this time there was nothing I could do. I couldn't move to run or hide. Instead, I'd be taking this assault straight to the face. Bill was shaking, a little more disturbed than I was. By this point, I had witnessed horror and it had been through the ringer. The terrain vehicles were filled with soldiers of some kind, all wearing camouflage as if they were members of the U.S. Army. Although I could tell they had no allegiance to any nation, nearly themselves. The men and women within the uniforms held their guns up upon us while a singular leader stood among them. Their leader had dark skin the color of thatch wood and short beach blonde hair that was masculine and edgy. The woman was as beautiful as she was intimidating. Yaska, Petrez, go free the two, the woman shouted. Yes, Commander Rose, the two officers screamed before releasing Bill and I. I thought we were in a good position, although the tides would shift slightly. Cuff them, Commander Rose continued, her eyes a reflective magenta that fit her name. Yeska and Petrez did as commanded, and once again, Bill and I were locked up by people outside of our control. We will take them back to base. Bill and I were loaded into one of the train vehicles, and the troop moved out. The badlands of red and brown rock slowly shifted into rural housing before we came to a small town. The buildings stacked up next to one another and looked fragile like rows of dominoes ready to fall over. Homes and businesses looked barely operable as they fell into decay. Windows and doors boarded up and only a few humans walking around in the outside air above the dark clouds and red haze, which turned out to be the sky of Gignasco Carmine. Upon closer review, the humans walking around were members of the army that had kidnapped us. The guard was decked out with guns, ready for conflict and chaos to bloom forward. I realized that this is what the bird of all birds had intended by dropping Bill and I off into the obliteration. The land was filled with war and chaos, the same terminology and descriptors which the bird of all birds had used against us. In this metaphorical land of midlife crisis, it truly was an epidemic of unknowns and the pain of the present. I could see the tinges of self-loathing, paranoia, depression, anxiety, which could all be attested to the stricken town and the overall appearance of the land. Nothing seemed to grow with nourishment. If anything, you seemed to grow trying to find anything to neutralize your existence here. Yeska and Petrez were also the ones to lead us into the small back jail. They tossed us in the same pen mainly because there was only one pen left. Commander Rose approached. Her figure was backdropped with the other cages of prisoners within the poorly made yet doable jail. You two don't look threatening, but for now we have to treat you as our enemy, Commander Rose sighed. It's nothing against you personally, but in this part of Gignosco, you don't let your shields down. We were dropped off here by the bird of all birds, I whispered. We have no ill intent against you and your army. You'll be interviewed shortly thereof, Commander Rose sighed. If you are as peaceful as you say, you should have no problem. Commander Rose departed thereof, and for the next few days, Bill and I rotted in the jail cell. 
There was no interview to happen soon, although I hoped it was on the horizon. Luckily, through our cell neighbor, we found out that the obliteration is under control of town states as different small militias and armies battled for control. It was an eternal apocalypse in this land, which everyone believed they could save. But by trying to save the apocalypse, the different armies continued to drive the obliteration into the ground. It reminded me of the saying, if I can't have you, then no one can. After a few days of nothingness, everything happened at once. Outside of the jail, I could hear the popping sound of bullets and what seemed to be like the depositing of bombs. I couldn't tell where it was taking place, but the sounds continued to grow, and soon enough, it seemed like the current town we were in was under siege. Holy fuck, I whispered, wondering who was attacking the Duram, the current militia who was under control of this town, and both the capture of Bill and I. It came to me that Duram was the shortened form of the phrase dead romance to indicate the midlife crisis of romance and bachelorhood for Clark King. The prisoners were all on edge, as we had a right to be. Do you think we're going to be safe? Bill questioned as the bombs and bullets continued their crescendo. We could only hope, but hope did not work out for us. The jail was hit with a bomb. All I remember was the loud noise which shut down my hearing briefly. Rock and metal threw up in the air like a rave of rubbish and materials. Dust and smoke billowed up, covering my vision in a chalky paste. Finally, my hearing slowly returned back as I could hear the screams and moans of my fellow captives. The vision of white slowly decayed as well as I found myself free from the makeshift prison. Its weak design could not withstand a direct bomb. Most of the prisoners were dead or injured, and as I turned to Bill, I found that he was in the first category. There was a scream of horror on his face as the blood trickled into the ruins beneath his body. I offered a second of consolation, but decided to use this opportunity for my own escape. I ran from the prison building, unsure of where to go next. Bombs continued to rain down close to where I was, but I managed to dodge all of them. My ears were currently bleeding from the audio momentum, while small scratches reeked of blood around me. Adrenaline was my master at this point as I dived through the neighborhood. I entered half-destroyed buildings and crossed through them. I came upon a couple soldiers who ignored me, and a couple soldiers who I had to shoot out with my gun. Above me, the clouds churned with the obsidian coloration, although they did not threaten with rain. The red tinge in the air looked like a pollination that would strike the rock, but the only strikes came from a crack of weapons from the Duram militia and their opponents, whose name I was unaware too. A streak of navy crowds whisked across the sky. Past them was the faint view of the purple matter that covered Gignosco. I jumped into one house to find a family of four hiding in the kitchen together, shielded underneath the table. Are you here to help us? The little girl at the age of six whispered. Please help us! The boy chimed. He was barely older or younger. I couldn't tell. My vision still felt split as the parents did not openly trust me as such. I bent down to the family and looked at them. Like me, they had a few wounds and a coat of material dust and body sweat. I'll try, I whispered, offering promises I had no right to do. Is this your house? Yes, the father nodded, deciding to extend trust in this hailstorm that was occurring. We're the Winstons. Who is taking on the Duran militia? It's most likely the militia that Duram hate the most, the mother suggested. The millennia. I found the reference to the millennial generation and the new millennium to be another interesting factor to the midlife crisis that Clark King was experiencing. I didn't have too much time to mellow out in the meaning, but I would save it for a later analyzation. After all, Clark King seemed like one of those older men who could just adjust to the new millennial. Well, we could get out of here, but the battle is still raging, I whispered, only to find that another person had ran inside the Winston household, and we all turned collectively to see the individual. It's bad out there, the man heaved, looking similar to the Winstons and I with his demeanor. How are you all holding up? It's terrible, Mr. Winston sighed. Sarah and Jeremy are safe, and that's all that matters. Absolutely, 
Man nodded, looking at the children with a soft grin. Hiya, I'm Paya. Hiya, Paya, Sarah Winston chuckled. That rhymed. It did, Paya smiled. Is there a good exit strategy? I asked the Winstons and Paya. I'm not from the obliteration. I don't know if it's better to wait it out or if we should make plans to run. We've always waited it out, but this attack from the millennia seems worse than ever before, Miss Winston cried, looking really upset compared to her husband. I'm afraid this will be the last battle. They'll tear this place down to the ground. Another bomb dropped close by and the entire room flinched. I have an idea, Paya explained. Are you with me? I am, Jeffrey Winston cheered. What's your idea? Well, it's more of an action that's going to happen. Paya chuckled as he opened his mouth and a tube immediately flew out of his mouth and connected itself to Jeremy Winston. The remaining Winstons and I watched in paralyzed horror as the tube seemed to inject one singular ovular being within Jeremy Winston. You could see the ovular being within the tube as the creature expanded the tube before entering Jeremy Winston's brain. Paya returned to the tube to his mouth, a smile on his face. Jeffrey, are you still there? Sarah Winston asked her brother, while the parent Winston duo moved themselves and Sarah away from the Jeffrey figure. Of course I am, Jeffrey celebrated before his mouth extended with the tube and connected with his sister. Mr. and Mrs. Winston watched their children in disgust, anger, and sadness, their faces morphing as another creature injected itself into Sarah Winston. Mommy, Daddy, it's great, Sarah Winston cheered, her demeanor the same, although clearly her body was not. Paya watched in delight as the family became related to him through a parasite. I had managed to move a distance with my gun at the ready. Paya did not seem to be an eater nor a negative but some third archetype that was more horrific than the first two. Mr. and Mrs. Winston had stood up under the table, but had not gotten too far away when Sarah Winston belched up a tube which connected to her father's head. Mr. Winston paused as another being was injected from body to body. Mrs. Winston, meanwhile, shrieked in horror as her whole family had succumbed to Paya and whatever the fuck had been inside of him. We need to get out of here, Mrs. Winston screamed to me as she approached. I've heard of these creatures taking over. Before Mrs. Winston could fully explain what was happening or talk about these creatures, her husband, or whatever had taken over her husband, had connected himself to her. The tube transferred a being between husband and wife, fully joining the Winston family in this twisted parasite. I backed up away from Mrs. Winston as the rest of the family joined their mother slash wife. Pius stood behind them like a puppeteer, although I imagined he too was merely a puppet in someone else's twisted game. Join us! <laughs> Sarah Winston chuckled at me. Mister, it'll be so fun. I began running. But the Winstons and Pio were quick on my tail. I climbed out of the Winstons' house and they followed at speeds to which I did not expect. Mr. Winston got in front of me and I immediately blasted him down with my gun. Mr. Winston's face hole bled open as he fell to the ground. The rest of the Winston family did not pause, nor did they care. As much as they operated as a family unit, they seemed disinterested in one another's lives at this point. Jeffrey Winston was next, as he tried connecting to me with the tube that dripped from his mouth. With three bullets in his head, the boy fell over. Mrs. Winston, who had been my ally only a minute earlier, took the next death as I ran through another house to avoid the parasitic creatures. Paya and Sarah Winston still came from behind me, ready to attack. 
As I exited a house and continued running up the war-torn path, a single soldier saw me running and ordered me to halt. I did not listen, and I ran past them. Before the soldier could shoot me or otherwise demand something, Sarah Winston wrapped the soldier in her grays. I saw nothing more as I immediately found a motorcycle bicycle and grabbed it outside of a completely destroyed household. With a single zoom, I ushered forward, leaving the battle between the Durham and the Millennia in, into the deep ruralness of the obliteration. The sky still reeked with streaks of blood red that, when gathered together, looked like dark cranberry residue. The clouds had stopped churning for now and were peaceful even though they were untransparent and foreboding. Their collective navy color seemed to aid the collective feeling of the apocalypse around me. I had not been running for long when a series of stag beetles began running towards me. I realized I was caught in a large stampede as I immediately began accelerating to escape the upcoming wave of giant beetles. The beetles were running, thousands clicking together as they crossed the barren and uninhabited space of the obliteration. I barely managed to escape the stampede, but I drove on for a while before turning around to watch the beetles cross the land behind me. It was the first time I had managed to get a break since the prison had exploded and Bill had died besides me. I was absorbing all that had happened when I heard a click of a gun from behind me. I didn't know who was behind me, but Clark King did. She was the worst date I ever went on following my divorce. She was a fucking bitch. I got off the motorcycle bicycle and turned around to see Commander Rose behind me. She was covered in blood and rubble dust, just like I was. But her army uniform remained tough as her spirit. Her short hair was pushed back and her dark eyes glared into me. Commander Rose's gun was close to my face, held steady without any hesitation in the fingers which would consider whether I was to live or to die. Did you track me down specifically? I asked. You don't think I was paying attention when I saw you leave town? Commander Rose barked. You are suspicious. I don't know exactly why, but fuck if you think you can just jump out of here without my permission. Goodness, you'll be fucked. Well, what do you want from me? I want you to tell me if you had anything to do with the attack from the millennia today. I didn't. I'm not even from here. I find that hard to believe. Do I look like I am part of anything around here? I questioned. I told you I'm not from the obliteration. Tell me why I shouldn't shoot you right now and leave you out here. Commander Rose demanded to know, switching gears to the grizzly pretty quickly. I'm not your enemy. How can I guarantee that? My word. Words are never good enough for anyone, Commander Rose snarled. I didn't get to be one of the top people in the Darum militia for my word. My actions, my philosophy, my existence got to where I am. You speak of words. I don't speak. I act. I'm sorry if you got offended. You're right. You've been nothing but an insult. Commander Rose began to pull her finger back, but I disarmed her with two swift movements. Commander Rose looked shocked that I had managed to skim around her, but I was far from being done. I punched Commander Rose in the face as she stumbled backwards but held her ground. The two of us engaged in a fist fight as the beetles circled the land. We were not enveloped by them, but they served as the background for the fisticuffs. Rose slammed into me, into the face, in the chest, practically everywhere, while I did the same back. We engulfed each other with our anger. Both of us seemed like resilient humans who were now testing one another in the dead space of the obliteration. After what seemed like a long time, the two of us stood facing each other. There wasn't heat, but the mere battle of it all had cast a heavy sweat upon us. I don't get why you're fighting with me, I muttered. What about the town back there? Isn't that your responsibility right now? My responsibility is finding out who is responsible for destroying my town, Rose retorted. I'm not the grunt who picks up the rubbish. I'm the leader who finds the mutt who dug through our shit. I'm not your guy, Rose. You say it so well. Either you really are telling the truth or you're a really good liar. Rose clearly was stuck at an impasse. What are you doing here anyway? I was placed here, I muttered. I apparently took advantage of knowledge, but all I was trying to do was find Clark. Clark. 
Rose whispered the name like he was a long-lost lover of the brand of a cigarette she had smoked one summer in her early youth. You're looking for God. Do you know him? He comes to me, Rose explained to me, breaking the facade she had been holding on for so long. He, he comes to many. We don't talk about this shit kind of often, but y y you hear the occasional whisper or, or, or implication. They saw Clark, this black man of some sorts who transcended age, even his color and male sex. He would whisper that he's here, that he's so close. Clark knew how fucked this place was. He knew everything about it. it was a horror and that we were nothing more than poor victims caught up in the world. I thought Lavender created Gignosco, but he called it Life Changer. Every single centimeter of my skin flared up in goosebumps as my hair stood up in full exultation. I had gone from hearing Lavender spoken as such, then to the code, and now as Life Changer. What do you know about Life Changer? I questioned, my tone coming across slightly harsh, no doubt. Rose looked at me as if she was going through an exorcism and immediately grabbed her nearby fallen gun. I picked up my gun and immediately fired. Rose and her gun fell to the floor like an angel stripped of her wings. I moved quickly, my gun still smoking as I lowered it. No doubt in my mind that Rose was no longer a threat. Uh, I suppose the, the obliteration, it's just natural chaos. Rose whispered, blood streaming out of her mouth and forming across her flawless skin. On the ground of the Badlands were soil, which could not make fruit, nor could it hold humanity, was the stained diamond who was falling to death. Fuck. Sometimes I wonder if I had control of my life in Gignosco, the obliteration, or if they had the control. Commander Rose was no more. The flower of her life had been extinguished with one bullet. My actions swung in the void of gray decisions that balanced between right and wrong. No doubt she was drawn to the conflict, and perhaps she wasn't going to shoot, but perhaps she had been wanting to shoot at the same time. I didn't look at Rose's body too long, worrying that her soldiers would come around soon to find her. I grabbed my electrified bicycle and noticed that there was nothing nearby. There were no humans, no civilization, not even a large bull-style collection of beetles traipsing over the lands. Like the end result of chaos, everything had been killed or had died. Nothing kept me, so I rode away. Day turned to night. Night turned to dusk. Dusk into day. I had been riding this whole day into the vast nothingness of the obliteration. I had seen a town in the distance and avoided it like the plague. I had not slept, for I had not needed sleep, nor did I need food and water in Gignosco. Such things were of luxury here. I didn't know where I was going, and the place was so big that I, I, I could see nothing except for the obliteration. Usually I stood in small rocks to see the other rocks around me, but here it was just the obliteration in my internal 360. I would never know how I arrived there, but I did. There, in my vision, was a small black hole. Nothing had lived within miles of this space. It was almost as if there was no traffic here on purpose. I got off my bike and slowly moved forward before I peered over the hole, which did not show anything but the pitch black. There was not a sign, nor any indication of what this location was, but there was a singular lavender plant. It grew on the other side of the hole from where I stood. It was as tall and in full bloom. It brought me back to the small plant in Three Wise Monkeys Rock. It stood alone, without anyone supporting it. The single lavender plant said everything. I did not question any logic. I did not stop to really think or absorb. I wanted no second thought or guess. With a small leap, I jumped into the black hole, hoping that the lavender plant marked the spot.
Thanks so much for listening. For more podcasts created by Steadfast Media Company, check out our website at steadfastmedia.home.blog or join us on Twitter at SteadfastMCO. That's at SteadfastMCO. And at the end of this 10-part series, I'll be releasing the text in novel form. But until next time...